I'm on the phone today with Jillian Shoney, who is the executive director of Emerge Oregon, which is an organization that recruits, trains, and supports women Democrats to run for public office. Thanks for joining me today, Jillian. Uh, thank you, Jack. So I just would like to start with kind of the basics of what you do. So tell me what are the sort of the first steps in the process of recruiting, training, and supporting uh, Democratic women to run for office? Well, I do a lot of outreach um, because, uh, and I think this will make everybody feel good about the approach we take as an organization, you know, but um, to be blunt, you know, is it, it isn't just about any Democratic woman. Um, you know, I'm not running for office, for example, but I am looking for other women who are in their communities doing great things for people. You know, whether that's in an advocacy realm, um, through their professional work or in their volunteer time, um, you know, I'm just looking for women who are who are leading in those in, in those ways that I think we all want those sort of inclusive um, people centered ways. And those are the women that we really work hard to get to know and uh, recruit into our program. And so how do you find women who are doing this? Like what are, what are your connections with the world of advocacy and leadership that get you uh, get that get some of these women to your attention? Well, I would say in the beginning, we're 10 years old now. So, you know, 10 years ago, it was through advocacy organizations across all issues um, in the communities across the state. So it really was um, we were reliant on community-based advocacy organizations or professional associations as well. Um, now it's that, and we have a large network of women that we've bought, uh, that we've um, created across the state. And I love it when our alumni of our organization refer a woman to us. Um, I just that's the best resource that we have now because uh, they know what we're looking for. They know what the program offers to women. And um, and it also just tells me like they would vote for that woman. Like here is an amazing woman in our community doing good work for this constituency. And she should consider running for office one day. And that sort of stamp of approval is like the best vetting um, I could hope for. So your your outreach, you can be more passive about it because you've built this network over ten years. Things women come to you more or, or referred to you yes. more than in the past. Well, that's fantastic. So, what are some of the specific traits that you look for when you're eyeballing a new recruit? Well, first, let me just speak to diversity, and I mean diversity in all ways. Um, certainly, we need um, uh, more diverse leaders. Um, racially speaking, um, but also age, uh, professional background, uh, personal lived experiences. I think we are trying to do a good job of having that breadth of lived experience from a variety of lenses um, so that as our elected leaders consider public policy and develop public policy, there's just a, a variety of perspectives 
on the table for discussion and for consideration. And um, that's really what we're looking for, because at the end of the day, while it is my job to get more Democratic women elected, I care about the outcomes on the back end, which is the public policy um, that affects all of us. So you're not just thinking about the campaign and who can I get that's going to win these seats for Dems, but how can I recruit women who, when they win, are going to contribute to a healthier system of governance? Is that fair to say? Yes. Well, that's, Yes, absolutely. And so and do you think this is a pretty common perspective for organizations that help people get elected in general, or is this a little more unique to your organization? You know, um, I'll take it to the national level, like the, the national landscape, because I think I think if you look at advocacy organizations, probably in any state at the end of the day, right, they're they're concerned about the back end. So I want to say in the advocacy world, you know, yes, um, the public policy at the end of the day is is what matters. That said, I think candidate training programs in this country have largely been um, pull people in, train them up and push them out. There hasn't been a values-based candidate training program that is really looking to cultivate future leaders. And I think that's what's different about the Emerge model. We do screen. Um, we have an application and an interview process. We do care about the values that they hold and um, what they want to work on and the change that they want to bring to their communities or the things that they want to protect in their communities. Um, we ask those questions and, and, and we limit the number of women in our program. We are a cohort based model. We, you know, it's between 25 and 40 in a class and that is by design. So you guys are looking beyond election day. Uh, but w what it sounds like you're saying is that, in general, the campaign training field is more about getting across the finish line and whatever happens after Election Day is kind of beyond their purview or their concern. Yes. OK, so yes. um, what what are once you have once you've done this outreach and you've you've got people, what are the next steps in the process of uh, getting these women trained and elected and supported? Well, once they go through our program, um, I do my best to track them all, <laughs> make sure that they, um, well, let me back up for a second because, um, you know, our program is about running for office, but absent that opportunity, we encourage them to continue their community involvement and diversify their community involvement. So if they've done a lot of nonprofit boards for for example, we encourage them to get on a public board or commission. Um, every elected body in the state, whether it's a school board, a city council or county commission um, or our state government, there are hundreds of boards and commissions that are looking for residents to step up and serve and help shape public policy well before it gets to a vote. And so we encourage that. So we, after they leave our program, we track them and um, touch base with them and make sure that they are contributing back to their communities. And that's whether they win or lose the office they're initially running for. Yep. Yep. And yes. And so um, like in, in our view, even a loss, if you run for office and lose and, you know, 
a lot of people lose right out of the gate. That is very normal. Um, then, um, you know, we help them, you know, get back up and tackle the next thing. And, um, and is that a challenge? Is it a challenge to, to get somebody who has lost their first campaign to kind of not be dispirited by that loss? Or do you find that 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 is hard? So how do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) So losing really is as hard as it seems. Yeah, I mean, uh, you just work so hard. I mean, for anyone who runs for office, and of course, it's it's um, you know harder for you know people who might have more than one job or who have children or um, who have a job without flexibility. Um, that makes it even harder. But I think you know you take on this campaign. Um, most candidates. Um, uh, the further they go along in their campaign, the harder they're working, the more time and energy they're putting into it. And you want to win. And that, that desire to win and do the good things you want to do only grows. So when those election results come in and if they are not in your favor, um, it's crushing. And, I think everybody kind of handles defeat a little bit differently, but certainly for our women, I give them, I I have an initial conversation with them and we talk about, you know, what they need to do over the next 24, 48 hours, uh, whether it's a ton of sleep (laughs) or, you know, a drink of their choice (laughs) with their closest friends. Um, But also in addition to that sort of maybe bit of therapy, um, sort of the time out that they need to take most of our women experience something amazing. And that is that doors open regardless win or lose that most of our women who go out there, they are building connections with people they've never met and they have invitations to join nonprofit boards or government boards or commissions or, You know, they go on to mentor another woman who wants to run for office because there's no better training than actually running for office. They have a lot to give after that experience and helping them figure out what that is, is part of what we do as well. Well, that's great. So this is a class about winning campaigns. So I want to I want to move back yeah. onto that track. And could you tell me you talked about what happens after the training? Can you just take me through what the basics of the training are? Uh, like what are what are the things that you train women to do, and how do you go about uh, inculcating the skills and uh, attitudes that are required to win or lose to just run for one for any elected office? Yes, we certainly cover, you know, the nuts and bolts, Um, how to fundraise, how to do voter contact, you know, what people call field, your field plan, whether that's doors, phones, digital, social media. Um, We cover all that. But I think what's unique about our program is our first day and how we start. And that entire day isn't traditional public speaking. It really is um, about human to human communication and how um, how do humans communicate? How do you how how to increase the likelihood that you are making a connection with another human. And part of that reflection on the first day is, um, is 
what triggers you when you get up behind a podium or someone sticks a microphone in your face, you know, what, what how does your body physically react? Whether you get splotchy or your hands start to sweat and sort of having that self-reflection of, um, of how do I react in those high pressure environments and what are the tools I need to stay cool, calm and collected so that I can stay focused on what I'm saying and nothing else and building those communicate those connections, whether I'm on the door or standing behind the podium, um, that's sort of our day one is a deeper self-reflection in the human communication, human connection realm. Um, and I think that's what makes us unique. And our women love that because you're first addressing sort of upfront um, the triggers when it comes to public speaking and before we even talk about what comes out of their mouth. So, right. so that's kind of how we start. So um, the bo- I like that you say, you know, like, how does your body react? And then I, ima- yeah. I imagine that people have varying reactions. And so there are different tools for different reactions. Uh, what are some of the examples of, you know, let's say that I, I said to you, I was in your class, I said, I said yeah, you know, whenever I, I'm fine at a podium, I can speak to a crowd. But when I get into a small group of two or three people up close to me, my my chest just tightens because I feel that that's too close. So how would you how would you address somebody like that? And that's that's not true of me, but I know that's true of a lot of people. Yeah, it, that's it, that's such an interesting um, and very common problem. But I will tell you, like a lot of what we talk about is the time leading up to that moment. Um, you know, your brain need needs oxygen, <laughs> so we talk about. You know, maybe it is before you walk into that event, you walk around the building a couple of times, you know, you don't. And when you walk into the space, you don't go sit and take your your spot and stop moving. Right. What do you need to continue to move to keep the blood flow going? Um, And then also setting yourself up for success, you know, making sure that um, you have a sort of set connection before you walk into that space. Um, either somebody to go with you or somebody to greet you and right and introduce you around the room. So these people in that small circle aren't complete strangers before you sit down and jump into a conversation that you know a little bit about them. So can you create that time in that space beforehand um, to meet these people? And then you do a better job of meeting them where they're at. And we talk about that on, on day one as well is the art of, of um, I shouldn't say the art, but just the basic practice of active listening so that you know your audience and um, you're not there to talk at them. You're there to talk with them largely in that, that small group context. And so what does it take for you to get to know them before you launch into whatever it is you want to tell them about your candidacy? So before you even have something to say or before you even work with with your recruits on what they're going to say, you work with them on how to make human connections and how to cultivate the skills uh, and kind of personal practices that are necessary to do that. That seems like a really good first step. Uh, It's, I think, easy to think that, okay, a candidate either is or isn't naturally suited to you know, face-to-face campaigning, shaking hands and kissing babies, giving speeches. But it sounds like you're saying that 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 can, those can be cultivated, those skills. 
I really, I really do think they can. And I, and I think it is as simple as this sounds grounding people in sort of, um, what life is like for most people, um, and just sort of recognizing first what we have in common, right? I, and I think I think that's just incredibly important that there is when you, I think a lot of people assume there's going to be conflict or disagreement going into conversations, but if you can start it out on whether it is that storytelling to build that connection, something around a common experience many people have and sort of connecting on that that very human level first before you start getting into the the details of any given public policy or whatever it may be um but i think how you start those conversations and storytelling is a good way to do it is incredibly important right now you mentioned active listening earlier and i know that you know, if, if somebody's listening to me and nodding and I can tell they're just waiting for yeah. their, their turn to talk, I don't feel heard. But if I can tell someone's actually listening to me, even if they open their mouth later to say something that I totally disagree with, I feel way more connected to them because I knew that they actually weren't just waiting for their turn to provide their counter argument to whatever I was saying, but that they were really, really making that connection. And that, that kind of basic face-to-face -face psychology is really important. Yeah, we talk about listening to learn, not listening to react. Oh, that's a nice distinction. And I think every human on this planet <laughs> needs to practice that skill. It does not come overnight. Right. And so it's it's useful in all realms of life. And certainly it sounds like very yes. useful when you're campaigning. But yeah, not a lot of the, these skills are not natural to us. Um, and they're also it's I think they're accessible to a lot of people. And there are probably some people who just have a level of social anxiety that would mean that they're they can't be trained to do this kind of thing. But most of us can the, probably get there. The other thing that I would love to share with you and your class members that uh, is also part of the first day, in addition to the what I just said about uh, listening, is to look for what you like. And that concept has been life-changing because whether you're talking your relationship, your marriage, your co work colleagues, before you even get to running for office, if you move throughout this world, and yes, there are a lot of problems. We know there are challenges. But if you consciously look for what you like, the feedback loop there, I, and you'll find good people through that, um, through that exercise, and you'll communicate better. Because again, if you if I'm if I'm meeting you, Jack, for the first time, and I'm looking for what I like, and oh, it's a commonality that we both enjoy politics. Like, there's just you start off on the right foot with another human. Yeah. And you, that's great. You know, I met I, for, I interviewed for my podcast, I interviewed a, um, a Republican strategist and I, I don't roll with a lot of Republicans, uh, uh, not because I don't like them because they're hard. They're actually hard to find around Portland. Yeah. And, um, but there was also a little bit of awareness. I was like, okay, I don't talk to a lot of Republicans. So what's it going to be like? The, the first thing we discovered was that we both were crazy in love with football, NFL football. Yeah. Um, and even though we actually root for totally different teams, th that connection 
And I like that. I was like, oh, good. And now I can use football metaphors when I talk to you. And we just, yes. we both, we both know what it feels like to have Sunday where you're in front of the football game. So that was, that was really powerful. Um, and it was, it was kind of accidental on my part, but it turned out later as, as I got to know her better, that it was an intentional technique on her part to look for ways in which people had commonalities before getting into the ways in which you have differences. Because we're definitely always going to, even if, you know, it wasn't a Republican and Democrat talking, you're going to have differences. Um, And in that that particular case, she's used to having significant political differences with nearly everybody around her in Multnomah County because it's, you know, there are are not very many Republicans. Uh, There are plenty of numerically, but as a percentage. Anyway, I I don't want to talk too much about me, but that that speaks to me very much. So, um, yeah. Look for what you like is a way of finding a connection that establishes uh, that like face to that human connection that you mentioned earlier. So what what are the what's the next? Is, is this all of day one or is there more on day one? Day one sounds great, actually. Oh, day one is all about sort of human connection and communication. But day two, um, we start talking about their profile. Um, so and I don't mean just their resume, but their entire life. Who are you? What are you about? What has shaped your values? And what have you done to live out those values? And looking at all of that, you know, what is your, we call it your profile in politics. And so what are the things you are going to highlight about yourself that build connections with other humans in this context, voters, um, that will get them to vote for you. And if you see gaps in that profile, if you want to run for school board and you've actually, you know, you're passionate about education, um, but you actually haven't done any sort of service in the education realm, how is it that you can get involved, whether it's volunteering at your school or a public board or commission, or um, we've even had some women start, you know, um, community groups around a particular issue to, engage people and get them to um, advocate, whether it's the state legislature or city council or whatnot, but helping them identify their gaps so that they then start addressing those gaps and they're better positioned to run and win when they do go on to run for office. So this isn't just a matter of finding gaps in, in your profile and then being able to smooth over them or emphasize other things. You're actually saying that if you're missing something that's important for running for this particular office, you need to go out and fill that gap, not yep. spin how you could fill that gap. Exactly. So there's a yes. so there's a level of patience and preparation. Even if you go through this training, you're not necessarily going to then run for office in the next cycle. Right. And in fact, I preach the right race at the right time for all the right reasons. And for some women, that's in the next cycle, you know, a year or two later, depending on what they're aiming for. And for other women, it's, you know, eight years down the road. Um, now, the women who who um, wait that long to run, it's usually because there's an, an incumbent that they really like. And they're not, <laughs> they're not necessarily going to run against them. Um, but. Uh, and do most of your uh, recruits have their eye on a specific office um, or do they kind of say, well, I want to be in public service and I'm going to look around for what would be right for me? Because if you're talking about waiting for an incumbent, that's you have your eye on a specific office. Is that common or is that just some, one of the many things that happens? 
Uh, no, I would say about a third of our women have a very specific office that they want to run for one day when the time is right. Another third kind of have a general idea, but we have a lot of women who change their mind and switch at the end of our program um, after they hear from other women and learn about other positions um, and understand more clearly the jurisdiction of any given office and what it takes to run and win in that spot. Um, and then another third are those recruits where we are like, you are amazing. We want you to run for office one day, use our program to try it on for size. Um, so we sort of capture them. Right. And, <laughs> and, then, then, and we... then figure out later what you want to run for, what, yeah. what, how, how you could best, uh, what, where yeah. the gaps are that you could best serve the community. Um, yeah. So the profile and other, what are the questions that you ask uh, on day two to get uh, your recruits to begin building this profile? Um, well, I'll tell you, this is this is what I do. Um, you know that voter pamphlet statement that you're about to get in the mail? Yes. I have them look at voter pamphlet statements, and I ask them, "That's your that's your advertisement for your candidacy." What do you have to write down about yourself? Uh, how would you talk about your values? Who would have your back in terms of, you know, validation, that third-party validation you need to win? I use that as the opening tool to then have them evaluate or identify their gaps. Right, and the voter because pamphlet is a really, it's a really useful uh, resource for voters, but you're saying it's a great resource for training candidates too because they can look and say, someday you're going to be in this voter pamphlet, picture yourself there. Yep. Yes, and um, it is an eye-opening exercise <laughs> for a, a lot of candidates. And what are some of the things that their eyes are open to? Well, I'm going to point out the obvious one, you know, the required section up at the top. Um, the elections offices throughout the state require you to write none if you have nothing to put in those four required sections. Putting none is not helpful. And so, what are those four required sections? I'm not as familiar with the voters pamphlet as I might oh, be. Uh, it's occupation, occupational background, educational background, and prior governmental experience. And it's that last one um, where is, is of course, as you would guess, the one that can potentially trip people up. And if you don't have governmental experience, does it totally kill your campaign? Absolutely not. But it helps immensely as voters are comparing one voter pamphlet statement to the next. Um, you know, none can be incredibly unhelpful, right, especially if you're running against somebody who's, you know, served on public boards or commissions that directly tie to the jurisdiction of the office. Right. And so for a lot of these down ballot races, the voters pamphlet is pretty much the only information that voters are going to get. And the only way that they're even going to know that they should fill in a bubble at that portion of the ballot. Is that right? Yes. The, we know like voters read that voter pamphlet statement. You cannot screw it up. <laughs> and this is one of the ways in which Oregon differs from every other state is that this is a, our voter pamphlet is kind of a unique tool for both candidates and voters. Yes. And, you know, I I don't quite have my arms wrapped around. I do know some versions of what we do uh, do exist in other states. But I think you're right. I don't know that there's that, the you know, 
it literally goes to every household in the state. It's part of our ballot access. Right. And there's you know, a work. And there's a formula. You know, like there's there's those. I did not know that that top portion was required and that uh, I haven't paid enough attention to notice that, you know, if you have nothing, you have to write none. So that's that's important because that actually is the maybe the only thing that people see. They might their eyes might not scan down after that. Mm hmm. Right. So, yeah, it's incredibly important. So that's the tool on day two. And then after day two, we get into the more traditional uh, uh, campaign planning, voter contact, fundraising, social media, you know, other marketing, marketing yourself as a candidate, um, that kind of stuff. And um, what are some of the things that you say, talk about when you're talking about using social media? Because I know that that's particularly now in coronavirus time when face-to-face contact is not available. Social media is pretty much the only tool that's left to a lot of candidates, particularly if you're not an incumbent and you have to break in, you have to use that. What are some of the like tools for communicating via social media that you uh, help your recruits gain? Well, I followed the data, Jack, and the data is very clear that the eyeballs are on Facebook. So um, actually, Pew Research Center studies this every two years. Um, And if you pull up their study, you'll see that YouTube and Facebook are, we've got a ton of eyeballs in those spaces. And then there's this gigantic gap for every other social media channel. And they have different audiences to the other social media channels. So as of right now, you know, I tell my candidates, you only need to be on Facebook. And, you know, you can create your YouTube channel and ha- house all your videos there. But every other channel, you do not. You do not have to be on it to win. Um, and that's just a fact. And then all the Instagram lovers get mad at me. And I'm like, fine, waste your time. Uh, you know what my 14-year-old daughter calls Facebook? She calls it Instagram for moms. <laughs> And, well, moms vote. Well, that's exactly it. Fourteen-year-old girls can't vote, and but it's it's funny because I I wonder if in ten years uh, the research is going to show a different thing. But it seems like Facebook is a, a, a platform that not only older people do look at, but that it's more information rich than Instagram or Twitter. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, you know, I think most of the people on Twitter, um, you know, are, are sports fans and journalists. And uh, that's fine. That That's fine. Um, but um, voters aren't there. Right. So what and you- most people's Twitter networks and this is we have the women ask themselves, like, if you are if you if you chose Twitter as the social media tool that you like best in your personal life, check out your audience. I guarantee it's not local. Right. Right. So, yeah. It's yeah. National. And those people can't vote for you. <laughs> so. So what makes for good communication via Facebook? How do you use it? What is it? Do you try to have a mixture of visuals and videos and words? Or what is what is the kind of uh, communication that you're going to push through Facebook? Well, this is, you already said it, Jack, when you were talking about, um, you know, Instagram for a second there with your 14 year old, um, Facebook is the storytelling platform. So whether you love it or you hate it, um, you know, the way Facebook is set up, it's a good, good tool for storytelling and, you know, a little bit of content with a great image or, 
a short video, you know, 30 seconds, because we're talking human attention span, um, it is the best tool for that. So we actually have our women look at, um, um, before they go on to run for office, how can you cultivate that Facebook audience that's there, whether it's, um, if whether you have a great local audience there that you just need to cultivate um, before you run for office and start sharing your values over time and these people and increasing your your the sharing of your political involvement, your public policy involvement, right, to start getting people to see you as a candidate. There's that work. And then once you do go on to run for office, do you have the the audience and the network there that you need? Right. And who are your biggest, quote unquote, um, friends who will do stuff for you online? Who is your digital army? Most if you've cultivated that audience right, you're going to have 20 to 30 people who can help you in the digital space. So they can amplify your voice by using their own social media presence to carry your message outward. Yes. So, yeah. You, you you mentioned storytelling, and I know that when uh, I first met you and you spoke to my class the first time, uh, storytelling was a big component of what you talked about in terms of how candidates need to interact with the public. Can you tell me more about the importance of storytelling for a campaign as well as kind of the style of that and what it what it means to actually tell your story to the voters? Well, I think first it takes a lot of self-reflection. We do um, we do some exercises in Emerge um, around, you know, what are the moments in your life, the events that happened that shaped the values you hold today? And we have them do this worksheet, you know, that just asks them questions to help pull that stuff out of your memory bank, which is hard. That is a hard exercise. It takes time to figure out what are the stories in your life that most shaped who you are today. And that's sort of where we start. And a lot of women kind of nail it down to three to five stories. And then, um, you know, for the typical campaign speech, they choose one that they feel um, that they want to share, that they want to use to build a connection with folks and that allows them then to pivot to the work they want to do in any given elected office, depending on the jurisdiction and, and what they want to protect or change about their community. So and that's sort of where it starts. And are these like transformative moments in your life that opened your eyes or changed your path? Uh, or is that just one version of what uh, you're talking about? Oh, I think... Um, we do not. We manage the expectations around this because you're right. It isn't necessarily like one. It's not necessarily a bad thing that happened to you. It could be a great thing or it could be a conversation you had with a neighbor that just, you know, really lit a fire in your belly to want to do um, work for your community. It can be anything. Um, I think a lot of people assume it needs to be this like you know, parting of the clouds moment, and it doesn't. But it needs to somehow be about, you know, it has to be somewhat transformative. I mean, we, when you say if you had a conversation that kind of lit a fire in your belly, to me, that's transformative, not transformative in the sense that like, I got into a car wreck, and I realized that life is short. I mean, that, right. Uh, but, yes. but you then what you said earlier, too, is then you want to be able to pivot from that to talking about your issues. So it, it has to connect. So you need uh, what you develop a, a, a set of three to five of these 
important moments and then you pick one to move uh, kind of into a speech. Yes. So Yeah, and we have them and then they have to write it. Once they pick that story, they've got a write of speech and that's how they graduate from our program. Oh, that's that's so that's that's the final exam. Yes, that's the final exam and they all have to stand up on the last day and 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 give the speech before the rest of the class. Well, that's that. And that's, I imagine that's a good training moment too, for handling that, those trigger physical triggers that you talked about uh, earlier about, okay, now I have to speak to all these women I've been training with and talk about yeah, I'm, a high pressure audience. Yes. I'm a firm believer that you don't go on to run for office without having actually written and delivered a speech. Right. I mean, it's just, just a minimum bar it sounds it sounds basic but also it's like it's not necessarily the kind of thing anybody would think about or everybody would think about um right I, I, do you have more to say about storytelling before i move on no. to a different question oh no no, no. let we can move on okay so um you've you've mentioned numerous times you've said uh talk about your values the values that shaped you the values um can you speak to the uh topic of values versus issues uh or uh like do you do candidates do well speaking mostly about their values and how they're committed to them and what they've done or is uh do you need to connect your values to issues or what you know i'm not forming a very good question here but i think you can probably speak to this well no i think you just you use your values to walk into a discussion around issues Right. Because I mean, especially in the context of like running for, let's just say, Portland City Council, um, you know, the 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 solutions to the challenges our city and every city faces. Right. You may not have those um, front and center as a candidate. I mean, if if you did, we wouldn't have any problems. But right. If you can use your values to say look, we, I believe the successful life starts with stable, safe housing. Like that's, that's where we need to get one day. Okay. So let's talk about how we get there, but focusing on just housing as a human right, housing as the only way, like, you know, it, it all starts with housing. You know, if you're, if you're trying to, um, you know, deal with a drug addiction or mental health issues or whatnot, if that person doesn't have a place to live, how are you going to tackle then those harder issues? It all starts with housing. And and I just think that that is what you believe, what you want for the world is where you start before you dive down the rabbit hole of the the solution that you want to pursue. Right. Cause it's probably way easier to talk to voters about values and what they care about than about policy and policy solutions. Cause that, that gets a little, it's a little wonky. Right. Because then again, you're starting with what is likely something you share with that other person. Like we can agree upfront that housing is a right. <laughs> right. So let's start there. And now let's dig a little bit deeper to figure out how we get there. Right. Or I've, I think yeah, I'm passionate about equity and inclusion, and we may disagree about the policies that will promote those, but we can agree that those are important, and I'm going to work for equity and inclusion in, in, a, yeah. in, a, in a main way. Yes. I get it. So that's, that's good. I, I'm actually, while I'm not one of the women in your program, I'm learning some things about what I might need to do if I ever ran for office, which I'm probably not going to do. 
Um, so, so, and, and it, it's mostly because I just, uh, I'm not sure that I have the personality to withstand the contact with people that I would need to, uh, undergo in order to be able to run for office. Um, but maybe that's just because I have a limiting belief that I can't get past those incapacities. I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor and I like to talk at people. The whole active listening thing, I understand theoretically that that's great, but it, it, it's challenging for me. Right. Um, just a quick story for a second. You know, as going back to how everybody gives a speech at the end of our program, um, for the first time ever, um, I shouldn't say this is the first time ever. We have some women who come out of our program and, and they are they have decided, you know, look, running for office actually isn't for me. I want to be the person who supports the woman running for office. Like I want to work on whether it's speech writing or social media or actually managing the campaign or whatnot. You know, that does happen. Um, and it's I welcome that. Because if this is not right for you, please, please do not run for office. Um, but we had a woman last year who um, who gave a speech on why she's not running for office. And it was hilarious. And it was it just was so good. But she our program taught her that she was the, the campaign manager. She's the supporter, the staffer. And she's doing that right now for a campaign. And it's great. And of course, candidates need those people. And yes. ha having gone through a candidate training program that you then made you aware that you didn't want to be a candidate is probably great preparation for being a campaign manager. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I, you've, t you've really given me and my students a lot of uh, information and insight. I want to finish with one last and potentially very tricky question, or not, I, I shouldn't say tricky, um, it's a big question, which is uh, what are the main obstacles that women face in a campaign that men don't face? Um, so a lot of it is still, we just haven't um, quite gotten to the place yet, Jack, where um, women quite have the flexibility in their lives that men have traditionally have. Now I, I do see that changing. Um, but, um, you know, men for many, many decades have gone on to successfully run for office. And it is my belief that, um, you know, there's a, there's a variety of reasons for that, but one of those reasons is that, you know, men were networking in the workplace. They also were networking after work, going out for that beer, um, because, the spouse, traditionally the woman, was at home, whether or not she was working, she was doing, she was running the household, raising the children. Um, she wasn't out there networking and building that network of people you need to run and win a campaign. Because um, candidates can't run and win alone, right? They have to have people supporting them. And that sort of structural fact of life um, just hasn't put women in, in, um, the same position as men. And I do think it's changing that said, it's probably not changing fast enough for some of us because as women have entered the workplace, they still are, uh, largely in charge of the home front and the child rearing. And so they just 
time. Time right. is the most precious resource um, for many things, but certainly preparing to run um, and building the network to run and then having that flexibility on the campaign trail, that time on right. the campaign trail. Um, and women just don't have access to that time and flexibility in their lives like uh, men traditionally have. Right. And you mentioned earlier, you know, making sure that you're doing uh, community service and possibly, you know, serving on uh, nonprofit boards and public boards. In addition to going out and having the beers and doing that kind of networking, that also takes that's a lot of evenings and weekends. And if you are the primary caregiver at home, you have fewer opportunities to cultivate those kinds of pieces of experience that are going to go on your voter pamphlet profile. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So until you can create until, I mean, we talk about conversations with partners in our training. Um, your partner has to be on board. And part of that starts now with giving them the opportunity to go out and build those networks. And it means that they're not always the ones making dinner and putting the kids to bed or cleaning the house and doing the laundry. So, yeah. <laughs> So that's, I can see for sure where like that, just less time available because women still do the bulk of the domestic uh, caregiving. What are some of the other obstacles that women face when actually as a candidate out there, let's say there's a woman running against a man. What are some of the difficulties that that woman is going to face? Well, particularly in the context of school board races, you know, women are always asked if they have children. Men just are not asked that question. Um, and if they do have children, uh, well, it cuts both ways. Um, if they don't have children, it's like, why? <laughs> Which can be a horribly offensive question or sensitive question, depending right. on what the real answer is. Um, because right, so they, many, many women, like the idea that women, if you don't have children, you have to answer that why. Whereas if a man doesn't have children, he never gets the follow up question of, well, why don't you have children? Yeah. I mean, in fact, I don't even know that they get the question at all. I don't, I've never seen a man get asked that question or, and then if they do have children, the follow up, well, who's going to take care of the children, even the married women, right. Or in committed relationships, you know? Right, because clearly your husband's not going to take care of them. <laughs> I mean, that's right. not, not clearly, but that's the that's the that's the cultural norm is that the woman is going to take care of them. So if she's running for office, the children are essentially it's Lord of the Flies for them. Right, and women ask the question too. It's not like it's only men asking women this question. It's also women asking women this question. So we all have to just stop asking that question and trusting any working parent they've got their shit handled. <laughs> right. Well, it's a cultural expectation that by, of both men and women that the women are the primary caregivers and there's still this underlying sense that women are better at that anyway. Um, yeah. And so, so, so the, just the basic sort of patriarchal sexism of those cultural expectations are, uh, you know, you're given a, a very good example of a concrete obstacle, which is, you know, you're getting asked questions by voters and if you can't answer that question in a way that's satisfying to them, they're less likely to vote for you. Yes. And then uh, the other thing that I would point out is sort of the executive type positions, meaning governor, mayor, uh, county commission chair. Um, there is, um, it, it, you know, it's not there. 
this is not clean. It's not that all men are this way and all women are that way. But in the context of when women run for mayor, particularly, or governor, you know, there is just a certain style that people are accustomed to. And that is, you know, a man who stands up there and simply tells you what the answer is or tells you what's going to happen. And it's sort of, it's very blunt and straightforward. You're talking about mansplaining. That's what it, that's, that's, well, man, that's mansplaining, right? Just saying how it is as though you don't know. And I know. Yes. I think it's also a, a style too, but yes, uh, I think it is a, a very quick step into mansplaining, but it, but it is, a, it's a style and then it's a style difference. And then where women, I think are, um, tend to process more or how they, what they're going to do to get that decision to that decision, who they're going to talk to. It's more about the process. Um, and so I think they just, um, they pack in so much more to, or, you know, they bring behind that podium so much more than just the answer or the talking point. And I think we've seen this most recently in this, um, even in this pandemic context um, where I think, you know, we had our governor stand up and, um, you know, not just shut down the state, but she was very open with how hard of a decision that was. You don't typically see a man sharing the context of, uh, around a decision that's being made. It's just a completely different style. Right. And you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, it's, it's more robust and richer to have that process explanation as well as in the decision, but the cultural expectation or the, the, the sort of built in response that we as citizens and voters have is we just prefer the what's being done. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's it, exactly. and it seems it seems like we are missing. We should ex, we should actually be expecting the kind of presentation women are giving us because it's 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 richer and more satisfying, but it's not the cultural norm. Right, and I, I think it's a it's it's a demonstration of a more inclusive leadership style. I think it was important to Governor Brown before she shut down schools that there were calls got made. I mean, we have 197 school districts in this state and it's a big deal to shut them down. So being able to share and, and, and wrap this decision in that, in, in acknowledging how hard this is going to be for superintendents, principals, teachers, and the kids. Um, I appreciated that, that she didn't just run up to the podium and, and, slam our school doors shut but I, there's a difference in of, of opinion out there jack there's she's received a lot of criticism for sort of sharing how she was mulling over that decision it was a necessary decision to make but it was a hard decision to make and i but but well and it shows you know it shows concern and empathy um and Again, like, you know, more more and more in this coronavirus time, we're hearing about, you know, leaders showing empathy, but there still is not the expectation that leaders should show empathy. And there's almost this like, you just, you do, you make the hard decisions and tell us what they are. And that's what we expect in our leaders. Yes. And I'm, I'm tripping over myself because I'm just, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about or give any, um, 
I think our leaders here in Oregon have done a good job. I really do. And I've been frustrated with the comparative between um, um, some of our leaders in like Andrew Cuomo, because here's where I, I, here's my feelings about Andrew Cuomo. You know, everybody's singing his praises. Well, as somebody who used to be a communication staffer for a governor, when I see Andrew Cuomo, what I see is the fact that when this hit, he was like, get me an armory, set me up a gigantic wall of empty PPE boxes. And if you've seen that wall, when the cameras pan back, it's like 100 feet long and 20 feet high. Get me a table. Get me a T-shirt. I don't want to be in a suit. I want to be in an army brown short sleeve, you know, golf type shirt so that I seem accessible. And then I want somebody, I need five staffers to put together a fancy PowerPoint for me every day. And I'm going to get up there and I'm going to talk for an hour. What really could be said in 15 minutes. Like, that's what I see when I see Andrew Cuomo. Right, and I like, holy hell, like he had an army of staffers put together the perfect, you know, backdrop for his presidential campaign in four years. Right. But, and this and the, the, this type of presentation is very savvy in the sense that it picks up on yes. what our culture expects from yes. a leader. Um, and uh, women, wanna, women want to, you're saying, you know, explain more and connect more and not do this mansplaining thing. But that's not the, the obstacle. The original question was, what are the obstacles women face? The obstacle is this, isn't, this doesn't push our cultural buttons quite yet. I hope it does in the future. I hope that Kate Brown can be part of the movement to changing our cultural expectations for what we want from our leaders. But it doesn't yeah. push the cultural buttons that exist right now. Yes, thank you for bringing me back to the core of your question. I'm just this has been sort of my um that was actually that was a great rant. Me. I've heard a lot of people ranting over the last month and that was I, I believe that's gonna go to the top five of my favorite rants, by the way. <laughs> Do not share this with Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, if he if he's listening to the um guest lectures from my class, I think we're all gonna be pretty honored. <laughs> <laughs> not not because of him specifically, but just because, well, that, how did this get out there all that way? Well, well Jillian, this, is, this has been great. I really appreciate all of your insights and your experience uh, and um, the time that you have spent giving, the, um, giving your perspective to my class. Is there any last thing you want to say before, uh, before we finish this up? Well, you know what, because I think you have probably have uh, people in your class on the younger end of the spectrum. And so I just want to leave you like with this, because as we've transitioned our candidates away from the doors for good reason and into the digital space and, and on the phones, um, there just is no replacement for human connection. And those you can't replicate it online. I mean, I know all these young people get really excited about all the creativity that can happen in the digital space, but we know you are a candidate is nine times more likely to get that vote if they are talking to a human being in person on their doorstep. And I hope that never changes. Right. It's not so, it's not available to us right in this moment. Um, and right. in a year from now, we'll know how reluctant or not reluctant people are to re-engage in that kind of face-to-face -face human connection. But I've heard from a lot of people who've worked in politics for a long time, state and local level, that uh, you know, if politics is a face-to-face -face business, and if you can't get face-to-face, -face, it's going to be really challenging. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's gr- that's great perspective, and I want to thank you for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you once again for having me on.